Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. We've heard a lot lately about the welfare of all sorts of insects and seen some disconcerting headlines about declining insect populations. Joining me in studio to discuss the trends and explore some of the myths is one of the top bee experts in the United States, Webster University biologist Nicole Miller-Strutman. She is the Lawrence L. Browning Jr. Assistant Professor in the Department of Biological Science. Do you have all that on your business card? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it, is, it is all on there. It's all right. quite a lengthy title. <laughs> well, and also this month uh, you were awarded the 2019 Science Educator of the Year Award by the St. Louis Academy of Science. So, Nicole, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So we've heard for years that bee populations are declining, the bees maybe are headed for extinction. Is that the case? We are certainly seeing declines. Whether or not um, we'll see true extinctions, there are some species that are that are close. You know, there's one that's actually listed. That's the the rusty patch bumblebee. Um, but there have been recent de- headlines saying that you know we're in sort of some sort of insect apocalypse and all insects are going to go extinct. And I think um, that's a little bit of um, an exaggeration of the trends that we're seeing. We're definitely seeing declines that are concerning, and I think it kind of misses the point. Because we can have major declines without losing everything and still have dramatic impacts. Um, You know, I am, just going back to the previous uh, segment, I am a millennial. Mm -hmm. And going back a few decades, when I was growing up, I remember driving around in the summer and we had to clean our windshield every five seconds, it felt like, because there were so many insects on our car windshields, right? And we don't have that same experience now. We know that insect abundances are definitely lower and that that could have major impacts on um, what our ecosystem services as well for us. You know, by ecosystem services, I mean things that influence humans, but also for biodiversity. Mm. And I, I want to be sure some of our, our listeners do hear some of those numbers. I know that you are well aware of a 2017 study by the Center for Biological Diversity. Mm-hmm. And as I understand, it says that there are more than 1,400 species of native bees in this hemisphere. And of those, more than half are declining. And they identify about almost a quarter as at an extinct rink risk of extinction. Yeah. So that sounds dire to me. It is dire. And I'm not trying to say that it's not. I just think we want to be careful when we say things like all insects are going extinct. Well, I mean, cockroaches do pretty well around humans. There are going to be some species that are adaptable. Um, we are unlikely to lose all of them. But again, my point is just because we're not losing all of them doesn't mean losing a quarter of bee species isn't something to be really concerned about mm-hmm. because it is. So there's been a, a wealth of studies that show that the better, the higher diversity you have in your bees, the better crop production you have. So when we think about apples, almonds, who do you think pollinates all those things? We do move honeybees around. Honeybees aren't native. They're not from North America. And they are very generalist species. They can be decent pollinators, but a lot of times our native pollinators are better. So if we think about things like blueberries or tomatoes, honeybees can't pollinate those. We require bigger bees that can actually buzz pollinate. This is really cool. This is something that these bees do where they take a hold of the anthers of the flower, which is where the pollen is, Mm -hmm. and they shake it at a certain frequency. And if they can't shake it at that right frequency, the pollen will not come out. So pollen doesn't come out, plants aren't pollinated, and only bumblebees and some solitary bees can actually do that. Hmm. So by focusing so much on on individual species, we we sort of sometimes lose the the bigger picture where it's really about the diversity. Um, And supporting that diversity will not only benefit us, it'll benefit biodiversity. Hmm. What is hurting bees right now? 
That is a great question because it is not as simple as we'd like it to be. You know, if you have a simple issue, it's easier to address. Um, But when it comes to bees, there are a few key factors. And what's important about some of these factors is that there's things that each of us as individuals can do to address them. So one that people have probably heard about a lot because it's been in the news and it is very important is pesticide use. So um, pesticides come in all forms. You can have pesticides that act against insects, plants, whatever your pest is. Um, And certainly the ones that affect insects affect the pollinators. Mm -hmm. But it's not just those ones. Also, um, herbicides can affect them poorly in in ways that we wouldn't have expected. Um, But it just it interferes with their chemistry in a slightly different way. So that is one. Another one is lack of food resources. So pollinators require food, just like any organism does, and um, a lot of these species get all of their nutrition from plants, straight up from the pollen and the nectar. And if they can't find those resources, they can't reproduce, they can't increase in their populations, right? And the way that we have structured a lot of our agriculture and um, our land use is through monoculture, which can be good for productivity in a given year. Um, But the problem with that is if you have something that's blooming for a short period of time, that's great for that month that it's blooming for bees. But the rest of the year, those bees still need um, resources, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another one. And then nesting sources are another important one. Um, Most bees are actually ground nesters, so they're not above ground nesters. And the way that we compact the land influences their nesting resources. Mm -hmm. And then a last thing that's really important is diseases. So we're seeing um, this increase in frequency of um, diseases that are native. So they're from here. They've co-evolved with the bees, but they're becoming more frequent. Um, or actually some diseases that are have been moved around the world. Nicole, you're doing lots of exciting research into all this here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I understand that St. Louis has one of the most complete databases of bee species in the country. Yeah. That's thanks to an event that you run every summer, the Bee Blitz. What's, what's the Bee Blitz all about? So the Bee Blitz is um, an opportunity for um, – Anybody, any individual who is interested in bees to come help us track them. Now, that we do have an amazing database of uh, Missouri bees that is not, like, unrivaled, really. I mean, it's really quite incredible. And mm. that is, I mean, I contribute to that, but that's also in large part due to the work by um, Gerardo Camillo and Mike Arduzer, who is um, – you know, they're, they're just fantastic bee scientists, you know, and I'm one of many here. And this is this city is a fantastic place for pollination biology because there's so many wonderful scientists who work here, including me. Um, and so I just want to give the shout out to all of the work that they have done previously. Sure, sure. So with the Bee Blitz, what we have done is we have focused on a core group, the bumblebees. Most people are familiar with them. I, I like to think of them as the teddy bears of the insect world. You know, they're fuzzy. They're kind of cute. Um, they're big. And people um, can identify them relatively quickly. And we can identify them in this region by photographs. You can't do that with all species of bees because some of them are just too small or um, you can't see the right character with, with photographs. But we can do that with these bees. Meaning if someone goes out there and takes photos of bees, they can then send those photographs to an expert who can study them? Exactly. And this is what we have done. We've created um, a system um, working with uh, Bee Spotter, which is a citizen science program through the University of Illinois. And we have our own sort of wing here in St. Louis. And we invite 
anybody who wants to come out and try to help us learn how to track these bees to come join us. Um, we do a short training on the best ways to take good photographs of the bees because, you know, you can't just take any photograph. We need certain characters um, in the photographs. And um, to teach a little bit just about the biology of the organisms and ask quest- answer questions that people have. So that event this year is on June 22nd. Um, and where is that? That is going to be at Forest Park. We start at 10 a.m. How many people tend to participate in that? So we had the first year we had 60. And um, that was awesome. That was really great to have so many people. But then the next year, we really wanted to focus a little bit more down in on training. And so we ended up restricting the size a little bit to get our training up. And that was about 20 people last year. And we'd like to go up words somewhere in between would be ideal, I think, now that we have our training protocol down. And the idea is is that hopefully once people are trained, they're willing to go out and do this on their own as well and help us track throughout the season. So did you show up on the day for the first time? Do you need to be a scientist or a bee expert? Absolutely not. In fact, the the more that are not, the better, you know, the more people I get to meet and talk to about this stuff. So um, if you're a bee enthusiast, if you are a bee, enth- even if you're not, <laughs> if you're scared of bees, but you just want to learn more about them, mm. come Their Bees are really they kind of get a bad rap and wasps, too. You know, um, there are some that are aggressive, some wasps that are aggressive, but most bees and wasps are really not. Um, they just want to go about their business with their flowers, and we kind of sometimes get in the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of folks who get skittish when a bee starts buzzing around in the house. Absolutely. And probably more than that number of people who have actual bee allergies. How, yeah. many, how many people have bee allergies, and how dangerous is a bee? It's really rare. The The extreme allergies, the ones that we worry about the most, are really quite rare. It's only, I think, in like a half a percent or a percent of people. It's really, really low. I don't have to check that exact number, but it's really quite low. But... There are people who don't have anaphylactic shock, which is what I'm talking about, where it's a really severe allergic response. Um, But there are people who have a larger response than others who maybe want to be a little bit concerned still. You know, if they get get stung in a certain place on their body, then that would be um, worrisome. Mm. But it is really still quite rare. Well, for folks who, who do get unnerved about that, that buzzing sound, what, what advice can you give to folks for interacting with bees? Just act natural. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> no, watch them all you want. Uh, they don't, they're not watching you. They, they are literally probably trying to find nectar on you. They are probably trying to find a flower, thinking that you might be one. And the minute they figure out that you're not, they fly away. All right. So really the best thing to do is just stay calm. The one and exemption- be straightforward with the bee. Yeah, that's Just right. be like, hey, I don't have any pollen. Right. They, move, they understand move language. Move along, sir. <laughs> move along, sir, yes. Yeah. Um, and they do. They really do. The only exception to that are, are sweat bees because they do actually like to um, collect your sweat, but they're very harmless. Okay. I want to know more about sweat bees. Yeah. What, they, they collect sweat? Do they, they do. They collect the – yeah, they drink it. Um, and it's a way of getting a little bit of water but also the, the salts. So salts are important for us in terms of electrolytes is what we end up calling them um, depending on what they do. And bees have similar requirements, so um, they will collect your salts, yeah. Well, something I read about in Smithsonian Magazine yeah. recently mm-hmm. was what happens to bees during a, a total uh, solar eclipse. Yes. Right. What, what was your work on that? So this is a really exciting work that I did in collaboration with um, Candy Galen at University of Missouri. And um, what we were doing was, you know, eclipses happen so rarely and rarely in the same location. So it's hard for us to get good biological data about what happens in those locations. And this was an opportunity to um, 
to leverage the the eclipse that we were having and include citizen scientists along the way. So we worked, I worked with sixth graders at Steger um, Sixth Grade Center, uh, and then they worked with fifth graders throughout the country. So we had people here in St. Louis, Columbia, Missouri, Idaho, Oregon, several different locations. And um, we put out recorders because bees make that buzzing noise, right? Like we were talking about when they're buzzing around your head. And so we can, if we can hear it, we can record it. So um, we recorded during the eclipse before and after to see what happens with those buzzes. Mm-hmm. Did so, they get buzzier? So did how, they did get they re- how did they respond? They get really quiet. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. We were going for a couple different hypotheses. One was that, because um, there were a couple that are out there in the literature, one was that they just sort of hunker down as if there's a, a storm. You know, storms pop up regularly and that changes the light. And most of the time what the bees do is they find a safe place that's going to stay dry and they wait it out. The other alternative is that maybe with something with an eclipse, because it changes the light, the light is a little bit different than if it's being filtered through um, the clouds, that maybe that would change their behavior in a different way and they'd go back to the hive. Um, In that case, what you'd expect to see is an increase in buzzing and then a drop off. And what we saw was basically a drop off, a pretty dramatic drop off. Once it started to get um, the eclipse started to, towards totality. Mm-hmm. Buzzing stopped during totality. There were no buzzes during its totality. And our interpretation of that is that it has to do in part with um, a behavior that they would do with storms where they, they hunker down, they stay safe. Mm. Well, and who who was assisting you with, with that study? So in terms of the citizen scientists or – Yeah. So Steger Sixth Grade Center students helped us out with that as well as students throughout the country. Mm. And you were you were you were honored early this month by the St. Louis Academy of Science as a top science educator. Congrats on that! Thank you. By the way, thank you. I'm wondering, in all the work you do with children, do you see progress in terms of the STEM fields being more welcoming to women? Do you meet a lot of young women and girls who feel like these fields are open to them? You know, it's interesting. In my field, we actually get the young young women are interested in ecology and evolution, and men are too. We don't really see the same disinterest that you see, you know, once you get to high school when it comes to physics. There's more of a drop-off there than there is in my field. Mm. Um, And that is – so it's really – when you go into graduate school, undergrad, into graduate school, it's 50-50 or maybe even a little bit higher in terms of women representing the problem becomes with each subsequent step through the process of becoming a professor, becoming a scientist, mm. you know, becoming an assistant professor, professor, getting tenure, all of those steps, you lose women. Okay. So um, I love getting so there's, students. There's interest. There's, there's interest. There's absolutely But there are interest. still some built-in systems that are making it harder. Yes. For women to exactly. progress in those fields. Exactly. And that's not unusual, right? We see that in a lot of fields. But what we aren't seeing is some sort of major drop-off when, um, in terms of students' feelings towards ecology, evolution, insects, um, the same way that you do with physics and math. Hmm. And while we have time, I want to hear about another project you're working on yeah. at the central branch of the St. Louis Public Library yes. in downtown St. Yeah. Louis. What's, what's going on there? So um, a couple of years ago, the um, public library um, had a installation put in of the Manolo Valdez um, Mariposas, which is this ama- amazing sculpture of this head with this amazing um, – it almost looks like a headdress of butterflies. And the um, folks at the public library had been talking about potentially 
putting in a pollinator garden to go with that. And um, they invited me to be part of that project. So what we've been doing over the last year is designing a pollinator garden that is all natives and beautiful. Because the, the problem with you hear people say, oh, plant natives, and then everybody has this idea that it ends up looking, you know, like a not, not very manicured and not very beautiful. And you mm-hmm. really can have both. It's just a matter of choosing the right species and, and having a good design. And and so we, we just put that in in the fall. And all of those little baby plants are starting to green up and come out. And so we're really excited to see how it grows over the next couple years. And folks can come, go down and take a look at that? Oh, yeah. You can absolutely go down and take a look. And then on June 6th, we're actually going to be opening um, an exhibit there that has a little bit more details about the organisms. Nicole Mc- Excuse me, Nicole Miller-Strutman. Thank you so much. That was really fun. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Goodwin.